Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta on Monday, September 13th, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hopeful this will increase the accessibility of our briefings for all Albertans. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. In addition to our regular COVID-19 analysis for Alberta, we will focus today's briefing on ICUs in our province. Welcome back, everyone. I would like to begin by correcting my introduction to today's briefing. ASL will be added into the video after the live stream airs. This inequitable access is a concern for us, and we will continue to improve our process to prevent this from happening in the future. To begin with, I would like to welcome Dr. Vi Pond to provide an update on COVID-19 numbers in Alberta. Dr. Vi Pond. Welcome, Alberta. Uh, sorry to have to rain on everybody's parade today. The numbers are out and I don't think to anybody's surprise, um, they are uh, atrocious. And I think uh, I think it's really important to understand how predictable this is. Um, done some interviews today and just thought about some of the, the ways the numbers have rolled out and and really we've had exponential growth for, for months now. Um, arguably first noted an uptick uh, in mid-July, and this is the end result. I mean, this was entirely preventable, entirely predictable. In in some ways, it's it's pretty obvious this was intentional to happen in the way that the policies have rolled out because we've known exactly what to do throughout. So here's your numbers. Um, we're doing three days today, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So the numbers for each day, 1667. That's a 27% increase over last Friday's 1312. Um, Saturday, uh, 1503, a 4% increase over 1447 the previous week. And a really surprising uh, number for Sunday. Sundays usually are quietest day. People don't tend to go in and get tested on Sundays. But yesterday we had a, a, an astounding 1598, which is almost double, 96% increase over the previous weeks, um, 813. Overall, our, our seven-day average is, um, next slide please, is... Um, 1468 per day, which is just a slight uptick from the week uh, previous at uh, 1268. Uh, looks pretty steep on the curve, though, and you can see that their curve has has re-steepened, mostly thanks to that one, uh, one set of numbers on Sunday, um, completely overlapsing the week before. Um, one of the things, I'll get, I'll get to that at the end. I'll go to the next slide, please, percent positivity. Um, very flat at around 11 to 12 percent and very similar to the week previous. Next slide, please. This is the Delta curve. Um, and we've been told by Alberta Health Services Precision Laboratories that they're no longer going to be um, testing for variants of concern. So this will probably be the last time I present this. I just want to point out that uh, our, our 
average uh, percent cases per day has been very stable. Um, from the second to the sixth, we've been anywhere from 88% to 91%. I'm not so sad about losing this data. I think it's pretty obvious that Delta has overwhelmed everything. We're not sure what that other 9% is. It doesn't seem to be backfilled by the other variants. Um, but as long as that number doesn't start to drop surprisingly, uh, then we, we can be pretty confident that Delta is really the only thing out there. If, you're, if you have COVID and you're uh, pretty sure you have Delta, and, and I don't think that this reporting is going to change that. Next slide, please. So, uh, so this is the worst slide. This is where things are really getting out of hand, both our hospitalizations and our ICUs. Um, the first thing I want to point out is that the data for inpatients is notoriously unreliable. It um, changes abruptly uh, over time. So the data that I'm going to tell you today is likely not accurate for inpatients on the ground. It's, it's pretty much 100% on for ICU, but the inpatient numbers get revised day after day. And if you want to look at the exact changes, you can look at my Twitter feed because I'm documenting that because I'm really concerned about the fact that uh, um, when Alberta Health Services releases the numbers, it, it looks less bad than it really is. So uh, just going over the last three days, uh, Friday uh, up 29 to 578 for inpatients, Saturday plus 10 to 588 and Sunday plus 17 to 605. Um, and the ICU, I think, is where, uh, again, the, the numbers are more accurate and at the same time uh, more concerning. Friday up 12 to 181, uh, Saturday up 4 to 185, and Sunday up 13 to 198. And I'll just mention that there's been a news story today out uh, from CBC that said that AHS was releasing the numbers for today at 202. So I'm not sure if that's just um, more up-to-date information than the 198 that's being presented or more accurate. So 198 last week uh, was 137. So in a seven-day period, we've had a 45% rise, which means that the ICU doubling time is 14 days. And it's been 14 days for, for quite a while. So two-week doubling time. And um, that just means that we're in big trouble. There's no sign that this is flagging. Um, if anything, my concern is that as schools uh, are now reopened, that we'll have higher numbers going through to the general community. That there's a bit of a balancing act because we know that we're going to have higher numbers of younger people impacted who tend to have lower uh, severe outcomes like ICU. Um, but as they spread it into the uh, the community, I'm worried that that ICU number, there's there's nothing to stop it. It's just going to keep going. So when you see us healthcare workers panicking over 198, just imagine in two weeks when it's about 400, um, we, we are in big trouble. Uh, next slide, please. Um, 17 deaths uh, today, I'm sorry, reported today, and that's for the entire weekend. Uh, next slide, please. This is the demographics, this is the age demographics, um, looking at the various curves. I just wanna really uh, point out that for the majority of this uh, Delta wave, this intentionally cruel wave, it's been the 20 to 29s that have been leading the pack. But those next two numbers right underneath that um, are the, uh, um, the 12 to 19. 
and the five to 11 racing neck and neck uh, upwards. Um, and I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Uh, what happened on the 1st of September, schools opened and I fully expect uh, those two age demographics to, to be leading the, uh, the Delta wave by the end of the week. So keep an eye out for that. Um, everybody loves a prediction, right? This is the worst kind of prediction. Um, you can take off the slides. Um, I just want to present one more set of numbers. And this is something that I started to do uh, over the weekend. Um, and I did this back in November, December. We have really good statistics on COVID. Delta is a bit of a different beast. Yeah, I, I think we can count on the case hospitalization rate and the case ICU rate as being quite accurate throughout this wave. And I say that because the average of both of those have ticked up from the third wave. So I think in the third wave, if my memory serves me correct, it was 4% hospitalization case rate and 0.7% ICU case rate. And now at this point in the, in the uh, intentionally cruel wave, we have the hospitalization rate as being uh, 4.2. So actually up from the, from the third wave and the ICU now at 0.8. So what I've been doing is I've taken the daily numbers and I'm adding them together. Um, so I'm using those case rates to try and figure out what today's uh, cases mean for future hospitalizations in ICU. So I did that for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of last week. And those three days alone equaled 178 hospitalizations and 34 ICU cases on top of what we've already seen just from three days of cases. So over the weekend, Friday's numbers represent 70 hospitalizations, 13 ICUs. Saturday's will represent 60 hospitalizations and 12 ICUs. And Sunday will represent 67 cases and 13 ICU cases, um, and providing that these you know, uh, rates remain constant. So if we add those to last week's numbers, um, just from six days, so less than a week, we'll have 375 hospitalizations and 72 uh, ICU cases. And so that's that's why we're in trouble, everybody. Um, I, uh, I don't know what to say. We're, I, I feel um, so helpless and so um, guilty that we haven't been able to do more. I know it's not our responsibility. We're not policymakers. Um, but it feels that collectively as a province um, and as an individual, um, we haven't done enough. And, uh, and I'm so sorry. Back to you, Michelle. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipon, for your ongoing transparency and care for Albertans and wanting to give us the information that we need so that we can do the best that we can for our families and those around us. I would now like to bring Dr. Schwartz into the conversation to add any additional thoughts that he may have on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta and give us an update on a letter today released by 67 infectious disease specialists in Alberta, or maybe up to 69, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, so, um, so I, I echo um, what Dr. Vipon said just about you know, the, the increase in cases, it's all been very predictable uh, and it's hard to feel anything but despondency right now and uh, profound disappointment that we're, we're in this situation. Um, and then making matters worse is, 
um, the fact that outside of our hospitals, we have people who are jeering us and, you know, um, obstructing access for our patients. And uh, it's, it's, it's a, a bit of um, insult to injury. So um, nonetheless, we're going to continue doing what we can to care for Albertans. Um, as infectious disease physicians, we are also you know, privileged with the vantage point of understanding how uh, infections um, spread and so the, the, the public health ramifications of, of certain actions. And so um, we have been disappointed to not have a more uh, engaged role in advising this government. But uh, nonetheless, we've taken the extraordinary measure of writing a an open letter to Premier Jason Kenney today. Uh, so this was uh, a letter that was uh, signed by 68 infectious disease physicians from across the province, um, which it is quite remarkable in and of itself because if you've ever met an infectious disease doctor, you know that um, we all have different opinions. Uh, famously, we say that there's uh, among 10 ID doctors, you can get 11 different opinions. And so uh, in this case, there there's not much room for disagreement. Everybody agrees that, you know, we're in the midst of a disaster and things are only going to get worse before they get better. And it really is absolutely critical that the government take strong and decisive action with uh, the utmost urgency if we are to avoid um, absolute devastation to our healthcare system, to uh, society in general, and um, resulting predictably in preventable lives lost. So uh, we really are in a lot of trouble, as uh, is clear from the ICU numbers. Um, the, uh, the consensus among the 68 infectious disease doctors is that we need a urgent intervention. Specifically, we need uh, certificates of immunity. We need people to be able to prove their vaccination status, and this must be mandated in order to access um, uh, public uh, spaces um, with the purpose of accessing um, non-essential services. So um, such, such access to indoor buildings needs to be limited only to those who could prove their vaccination. This is done for a couple measure for a couple reasons. One thing is it is to keep Albertans safe. It is to keep unvaccinated people safe. It's to keep them out of the settings that are at the highest risk for them to become infected themselves and for them to infect other people. And it is to allow for those who are vaccinated to continue to contribute to the economy. Ultimately, this is good for the province. And then thirdly, it is to incentivize vaccination uptake. And so we don't continue to go through these cycles. This is what is going to pre prevent further waves and further uh, uh, broader lockdowns. Um, th there was clear consensus uh, that that is absolutely required. Um, the, the, the next question is, well, what if, you know, the government doesn't um, introduce these measures? They have expressed a lot of reluctancy to embrace vaccine passports. And in fact, they just sent out a um, fundraising campaign on the uh, predicated on the opposition to such documents. And so um, we have called for as an alternative, 
wide ranging restrictions that essentially act as a firebreaker to, um, to, to sh basically uh, shut down non-essential businesses, uh, to limit um, gatherings to uh, 10 or fewer individuals, and, um, and, and a work from home order. So in order to avoid these types of widespread lockdowns that we saw in earlier waves, we really do need to have a way to very urgently decrease new cases. Um, I've, I've been asked, you know, do, do I think that it is likely that the government will go for a lockdown if they uh, don't go for vaccine passports? And uh, my answer to that is whether they go for it or not, a lockdown is happening. And so, you know, in medicine, we have a, quite a macabre uh, statement that is uh, really a, a true truism that is all bleeding stops. So if a patient is bleeding, you either stop the bleeding through an external intervention or the bleeding will continue, the patient will bleed out and die, and then the bleeding stops. It's obviously very dark, um, a dark concept. We're in the same situation. If um, vaccine passports are not implemented, there will be a lockdown. That lockdown is either a intentional one by Jason Kenney, or it's going to be one because our hospital system collapses and our society is going to collapse uh, as a result. So this is really uh, absolutely essential that the uh, premier take uh, decisive and, and firm action uh, in order to prevent such a, a terrible fate. Um, so without uh, further ado, I'll give it back to uh, Michelle and so we can hear from our panelists today. Thank you very much, Dr. Schwartz. I would love to invite our panelists to join us. With us today, we have an ICU nurse to provide some insight into what is currently unfolding on the ICU floors in Alberta. Ellie Ograsik is a nurse educator from McEwen University with clinical practices in intensive care and labor and delivery. Welcome, Ellie. Also with us, we are joined by Dr. Buchanan. Dr. Brian Buchanan completed his training in internal medicine, critical care medicine, and critical care ultrasound. He practices as a general system intensivist at the University of Alberta in Edmonton and is a flight physician with Shock Trauma Air Rescue Society, aka STARS. Thank you so very much to both of you and Dr. Shorts for joining us today. I think I would like to start out this conversation with asking both of you, what is different in the ICU today than it was two years ago? As an Albertan, I've heard for a long time about how precarious our ICU situation can be in a regular year. And so I know for a lot of our followers, when we talk about things like the system collapsing or the dire urgency of making some real changes, it can be hard to visualize what exactly you guys are facing day to day. Um, so yes, that, I think that that would be where I would like to start. Either of you willing to give us a day in the life comparison of then versus now? Dr. Buchanan, you go ahead. Okay, sure. So, you know, in the ICU, we, we tend to run pretty slim margins. You know, intensive care beds are fairly expensive. 
they're fairly resource demanding in terms of the requirements for physicians, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, occupational therapists, and on and on the list goes, and further running machines. So it, it's, it is a very expensive endeavor. And so we generally run with pretty slim margins and we really do make it work. Um, you know, we, we have basically a mishmash of different kinds of people that will come through our door, whether it's those with, uh, you know, with pneumonia, for example, or those who have burn injuries or those that have severe respiratory failure um, or, you know, bad infections, for example. So, you know, we, we see a number of different problems and we tend to balance that um, kind of on a razor's edge. You know, we, we work intensively, we work as a team. Um, that's the only way to manage it when, when we are just trying to juggle a lot of priorities. And, you know, I think that um, going through these ways repeatedly, um, our team has been very cohesive. Like we've, the nurses have done outstanding job along with their respiratory therapists and physicians at coming together and making sure that we can flex upwards and accommodate um, any, any changes and kind of ebbs and flows of, of patient volumes and patient acuities. Of course, you know, you could say that it's busy with 10 people that come, that come in overnight, but the truth is that it could take one person that could consume a lot of resources in the course of eight hours that can demand a lot of bandwidth of, of physicians and nurses. And so we have kind of flexed upwards and downwards as the waves have come and we've kind of moved locations and we try to accommodate the increases in volume. And I think that's taken a toll um, on, on practitioners and that includes physicians and nurses and, and as a list I mentioned before. And because it has been fairly exhausting, it's been tiring to care for patients who are severely ill at high volumes, but also it's hard to care for people that frankly, that, that may get better at first on a ventilator, but then may die shortly after. So. It, it has been challenging to care for patients that have been severely ill with COVID because it's it's a devastating disease for those patients that are potentially put on life support. And you know, as we've seen over the course of these recurrent waves, you know, the ability to care for those patients has become somewhat um, somewhat um, impaired because it's been exhausting. And as this fourth wave has come, we've seen a, a fairly dramatic rise in a very short time. And I think a lot of people are just frankly exhausted. It's been, it's been very tiring and it's also very hard to be there for someone who is dying and, and knowing that, that you just wish you could have prevented it. It's just a really hard place to be because, you know, especially for, you know, our nurses who are there at the bedside helping care for these patients and having people die that, you know, like really no matter what you can do, some patients will still just die. And that feeling is horrendous. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of information packed in what I've just described, but I think, you know, we are always there to adjust up and down. We will always be able to accommodate the increase in volume to a certain extent. But, you know, it, but things have changed over time because people are now exhausted and tired. And they're also somewhat demoralized by, by the inability to care for patients because they're just so ill. Um, so I guess that's, that's from my standpoint. Um, but Ellie, why don't you give your standpoint? Yeah, so I mean, sorry, very much of what um, Dr. Buchanan had had talked about. There's a few different things for nursing where you know, you know, our unit that we work on, um, we aren't always funded to the full capacity of our unit. So perhaps we're funded to 28 patients. We have extra patients come in. We do have capacity within that unit to expand uh, to those beds for a short period of time if we need to. Unfortunately, at this time, our unit is completely full. We've actually in expanded into um, other units within the hospital. So um, in regards to uh, the bed crunch, um, we're simply way outside of our boundaries of what we usually would have access to. Um, and unfortunately, that's 
that's a big toll on a lot of people. Um, you know, it's on the other units that we've had to displace out of their home, uh, home space. Um, and also other nurses that we've had to pull in from other areas to help try and um, maintain the capacity of nurses that we need on the unit. You know, one of the biggest challenges right now, as Dr. McCann had mentioned, is the desperation for staffs. So we have a, you know, a text messaging uh, service that, that sends out uh, requests for staff. And every single day there is desperation in those text messages saying we're critically short, we're critically short. Um, every single day and that's been happening for quite some time you know the nurses have had to you know and I'll speak on nurses uh, the, the nurses role I can't speak on everybody else's but um, you know whenever we're in the patients that we're caring for right now with the COVID patients um, a lot of them we know we found out early on that one of the best ways to um, help increase their chance at surviving was to be able to prone them so put them on their tummy instead of their back uh, to be able to, you know, have um, greater lung capacity. Um, because, so, but what comes along with that is, um, you know, you have you need to have a minimum of five people uh, to be able to do that. And it's not just five people off the street, of course, it's five critically, you know, skilled people that are able to do that. We have a respiratory therapist at the head of the, per of the patient, um, and then four nurses, um, perhaps an RT, depending on who's around to be able to help, physicians also come in and help, um, nurse attendants come in to help, um, and it's very heavy to care for these patients. So, but what's also happened in that is that um, several people have, uh, have hurt themselves and end up off work in that uh, because of the injuries that they've sustained due to having to prone people. A lot of these people are quite obese. Um, and so it's, it's quite uh, physically heavy to be able to take care of these patients as well. Um, another thing is, you know, outside of the physical space and the demand on nursing, these people are all isolated. So, you know, you're having to um, gown up. So regular in the hospital right now, you're wearing a mask and eyewear at minimum. Uh, when you're going into the COVID rooms, you are, you know, you're putting on N95s, uh, you know, hair covering, shield, gown, gloves. Um, it's quite labor intensive to even get in and out of the rooms to don and doff your gear. So that in itself is quite exhausting. Not to mention, you know, it's um, if a patient is crumping in a room, you feel this sense of urgency to get into that room to be able to help that person. But you know that you have to do it safely uh, so that you're not hurting yourself as well. Um, you know, having to the nurses having to spend increased amount of time at the bedside to try and relay information to families that aren't able to come in because themselves are affected, um, you know, we usually don't have to, you know, we're always a relayer of information. We're always the people that are, um, you know, along with the physicians, but we're often at the bedside when the family members come in to relay information. But when those family members aren't able to come in, then we really have to be the eyes on the patients. We're doing FaceTimes with, you know, with an iPad with families, and that is also labor intensive. Um, you know, with this, this wave, the ICs really become a family affair. We've noticed that we've had quite a few more families in this fourth wave than we've had previously. So you'll have, you know, you'll have brothers in the ICU or you'll have, you know, other extended family members in the ICU where they've attended event together um, because there haven't been restrictions. So, you know, they're doing the right thing, but um, so they'll attend events together and they'll end up becoming exposed and then ending up in ICU. So um, you've got, in, you know, several family members coming into ICUs as well. It's very different than what it usually is. 
Dr. Buchanan, you are currently muted in order to prevent feedback. Unmute yourself and then please resume those thoughts because I would like to hear them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with Ellie. Like, you know, I've, I've seen multiple patients where like, like their family's already been to a ward or to the ICU or in some cases it has already died. And I think, I think that's the, the dramatic shift as Ellie's pointed out, like we're seeing whole families. And, you know, I remember in, in the first wave, the first second, you know, the first couple of waves, I remember just seeing countless nurses at the bedside with iPads, like just for patients and, and families on there crying and all grouped together. And I just thought to myself, like, this is devastating. Like, th this is the worst, like, uh, you know, like, thankfully we have iPads, but I can't think of a more tragic use of that technology. And I thought, oh, like, I hope we, we can avoid this in the future, right? But yet we're, we're right back here. And I think that I think that has been really hard on people because we want families to be there for patients. Like we really do. It makes it really hard on, on people, on patients, on their loved ones when they can't come in and see. And, and this has been just another wave of devastation. And I think, you know, as, as I've kind of said before, and as Ellie kind of highlighted, every time we have a wave, we have a stress test. And, and that stress test, like in the, in the last few waves, like I think we've done fairly well with what we have, but every time we get a stress test, there's a little crack here and there. And, and, and there's more cracks and those cracks have built continuously and, th and that's been happening all across Canada, frankly. And every time it's a little bit worse, there's a little bit more stress. And I think now we're at the point where, you know, I, I worry that we are past the point of no return. That's my genuine concern. So um, can I can I just um, interject for a second? So first of all, thank you both for those really um, insightful comments. Um, Ellie, you were talking a little bit about kind of some of the, the consequences of spilling over from the ICU into other wards. And so we're seeing that everywhere. Um, so for, for uh, some people might have the, the idea that, you know, well, what's the big deal? The bed's the same. You know, the outlet in the wall is the same. You know, the nurse is the same. Uh, the doctor's the same. What, so what are some of the challenges that you... Um, can foresee or that you encounter when pro providing critical care outside of an ICU? You know, the tough part with critical care is that you have a baseline equipment that you're required to have. So um, in a hospital like ours, you know, we do have several ICUs, but we are at the point of breaking right now. Uh, so whenever you take care of a critical care patient, um, these people are monitored continually. So we need monitors at those bedsides. Uh, we need functioning oxygen, suction, uh, this is very much a respiratory issue, so lots of suctioning. We need uh, ventilators, so there is, you know, there's always concern with ventilators. Are we going to have enough of them? Um, not only just the ventilators, the respiratory therapists that are associated with those ventilators. So, you know, if you think of our population of healthcare professionals, um, I absolutely worry about how many nurses we have on a unit. Uh, but what's also very concerning because it is a smaller pool of people is that how do we have enough respiratory therapists to um, you know, to talk, to kind of get us through this next wave. Um, I was making a joke last weekend when I was at work because one of the respiratory therapists, I was in a room and um, he had me change the ventilator settings. And usually that's a no-no, you don't touch the ventilator settings. And I said, realistically, um, they're going to be having to give us some very quick lessons on how to operate these ventilators if we're going to be able to uh, go into this next wave and be able to pull people through. So, um, it you know, not to mention, you know, 
whenever people are in ICU, they're on all kinds of medication. They're usually sedated, uh, comatose because we're, you know, they're just not able to breathe. So we have to completely drive out their uh, inert drive to breathe and maintain them with um, this, of course, you know, consequences to that, we knock out their blood pressure. So then we have to give them medications to maintain their blood pressure. Um, so we need medications, we need IV pumps to be able to do this. We need people that are able to safely and be trained um, to be able to do these things. So a lot of floor nurses, they would not uh, normally be functioning or running these kind of medication drips on their patients. So if they aren't um, familiar um, with running these kind of, you know, infusions and also giving medications, we also paralyze people um, that not only ICU nurses that are trained to do that are able to do that safely. So if we have nurses coming from the ward that just give a medication called rocuronium and knock out the patient's ability to breathe at all um, without the support to uh, keep them alive, uh, we're going to run into a huge issue. You just spoke a lot about the human resources capacity of moving patients beyond the ICU and how that is happening, how different areas of the hospital are needing to be utilized to create what we've been referring to as that surge capacity. What happens when we are out of the surge capacity. A lot of folks have been asking today in the YouTube thread and in the Twitterverse around where will you guys put people next? I don't know. Dr. Buchanan, you're muted again. I'm the worst at this. Um, I, I think the answer is, is that um, you put them wherever you can like wherever we can have spaces. So we, you know, back, I remember when I was in Ontario, um, we, we, you know, like a, a couple of rough nights consecutively with lots of admissions, we, we started to spill over to the, you know, to, 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 to the recovery room, for example, where they have some similar resources and have staff that don't necessarily normally do um, intensive care, but provide recovery care. And, and so in those times where you have, um, where you have these extreme fluctuations, you have to use resources that you can mobilize that will provide uh, that, that that can help provide that care. So but but I think the problem, as always pointed out, is this is kind of like a hurricane and it's kind of sucking up all available resources and it's sucking it up from every single place from, you know, from the emergency department, from nephrology, from pediatrics. It's just it's sucking everything up. And you know, like, like, yes, we can keep growing this population of patients, but it always comes at an expense. Um, and it comes at the expense of providing a huge amount of care needs in non-traditional places. Um, and, and that, that again, comes with a lot of unintended consequences. So I, I think um, w one of the pictures that, uh, that both of you have really painted quite nicely is, is the way that an ICU team comes together and works together and everybody plays their parts and, and um, my my heart stopped for a second, Ellie, when you said that you were allowed to touch the 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 ventilator because uh, um, I, I I totally see how that that's verboten. The, the respiratory therapists are, uh, are are quite controlling over that. Um, so, um, what one way that I can sort of um, uh, um, provide an analogy is that the ICU team is kind of like a like a pit stop in a Formula One race, where everybody, you know, the, the car comes in, 
everybody goes and they go, everybody knows exactly what they're doing and they work like a well-oiled machine and they work together. And really that's what you need in order to keep people alive, especially with diseases as, as complex as COVID. And so now what we're seeing in the fourth wave and you know, with the moral injury with, you know, um, as Ellie said, some people are physically injured from having to, to prone um, patients um, and, and you know, moving that pit stop now instead of, you know, where it's supposed to be now, it's, it's kind of in a, in a back alley somewhere, um, you know, you've, you're subbing in different people who maybe haven't done it before, or maybe they were on a pit team 15 years ago when they were training, but they haven't done it since. And obviously it's not going to function the same way and you're not going to have the same sort of performance. And so consequently, um, patients suffer. And that's, you know, no one ever feels good about that. Providing less care than you normally would provide, it breaks our heart for sure. Like you don't ever want to provide less care than you normally would. Um, we weren't trained to do that. We weren't trained to triage these people to provide less care whenever you know that they require more. It scares me that there's, you know, like whenever you are outside of a room and you have to get inside really fast, um, whenever someone's choking on their secretions through a breathing tube, and you can't get in fast enough. Now, I was lucky to be at the bedside when that happened this weekend um, and able to go into the room. But what happens when we're split so short that I'm taking care of three or four people myself and I'm not able to see that person choke on those secretions? Then what's going to happen? So people will die because we don't have the resources. And I can't say enough about the people that have been redeployed um, to come and help us in ICU. They are a brave bunch of people. Like we get, you know, weeks of training to be able to go work in ICU. Um, and then you're still terrified for a year before you get comfortable. So, you know, to have these people come from different, uh, different units. I also work labor and delivery at a hospital and my peers from labor and delivery, delivering babies have been redeployed to ICU at their site to go and help because they don't have anyone else to go help. So, you know, these are both very skilled groups of people. They're very good at what they do. But talk about pulling them out of a situation and putting them in an absolutely foreign situation. Yes, they can react. Yes, they're very talented. But delivering a, a baby is very like different from managing a ventilator or proning a patient. So um, you, you, you both uh, invoked this really haunting image of um, the, the way that you put it, Ellie, was that um, ICU is a family affair. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to get that out of my head. That's really terrifying when I actually, when, when my neurons made the connections of exactly what you were talking about. Um, what, one of the challenges, of course, with this wave is that, you know, these infections are preventable with vaccination. And often resistance to vaccination um, you know, it, it might run in a family, or maybe there's a split opinion within a family. Um, I, I think what some people might not realize is that a lot of ICU care is also caring for the family that's there. You have the, the patient, obviously, that you provide, you know, physiological support, but then you also have the family that you have to provide a lot of emotional support. Can you guys um, comment on what sort of dynamics you've encountered in you know this wave 
where um, you know vaccination status has has been such a, a hot topic, and um, and there's been so much polarization. Why don't you go first, Ellie? Oh boy, where do I start? <laughs> you know, it's it causes a lot of anger when you find out that you have an unvaccinated patient. Um, you know, it's been really hard to grasp that people have an opportunity to stay well and that they're not taking it. Um, but we know that there's, you know, a percentage of the population that's that's not going to do that. And we'd really hope that with this fourth wave, we, we were we knew that a fourth wave was going to come. We didn't know that it was going to be this bad. We were really hoping for less, like really hoping for less. Um, you know, the, it was funny. I came out of one of the rooms when I was working and, you know, the person I was taking care of was unvaccinated. And I said to my coworkers, I'm so angry, but he's such a nice person. Like you, these are still good people. They're still good people. And, you know, I've always given the benefit of the doubt to my patients you know, a lot of our patients don't take care of themselves themselves and end up in ICU. Like, this is good for business. Um, I don't like it, but it is. Like, this is what we operate off of. And sadly, um, so, you know, it's really hard and the staff are really struggling knowing that all of these patients, um, it could be prevented. And there are definitely family situations where, you know, a patient will come in unvaccinated, but the rest of their entire family is vaccinated mm -hmm. and it has caused huge strife in their family. So I know that these things are happening in Albertans homes. And I just say, like, I feel for you. I feel so bad for you because, you know, it's absolutely there's children that won't talk to your parents and vice versa. Um, because, you know, there's disagreements on who, you know, should you get the vaccine? Um, and what if you don't? And, you know, there's a lot of what ifs, but there are definitely, you know, Albertans that are struggling at home with their, you know, their loved ones not choosing not to get vaccinated. And I, I just say to them, I'm so sorry. Like, I feel so badly for you. Yeah. If I can add to that, like, I, I think a lot of people genuinely just don't understand the, the gamble. Like, I, there's, there's a huge risk benefit calculation that each person does that they think, you know, like in, in terms of the actual risks of say, of their perceived their perceived risks of vaccination, which of course is in the eye of the beholder, right? Or, or those that are informed and uninformed. But there's also like the kind of risk of COVID and, and what do I think is worse? And, you know, the, yes, there are some people who are apathetic. There are actually a minority who I'd say who are staunchly anti-vaccine, but I actually think that, that that probably is the minority of people who are actually anti-vaccination. Um, I think most people just honestly don't have the right information. I keep hearing over and over again that I, I hear mixed things. And I'm like, well, but where are you hearing hearing them from? And I, I hate to say this, but this falls squarely on social media. Because the problem is the propagation of misinformation is so strong. And it's over and over again. And finally, the, the unfortunate part is, is that people have to be touched by it to realize how bad the problem is. And I see it time and time again. I see people come in and say, oh, gosh, I didn't know how bad this was. Like, I can't believe we like we, we took this gamble. And like, why did we do this? And it's like, if we only knew. And, you know, I've talked to family who, who keep telling me, like, like, how come you're not out there telling people about, about, about the risks of disease and how bad this is? And I'm like, well, people are doing that clearly. So, you know, I think right now we have a signal and noise problem and we just can't get through to people because there's there's so many impediments to to communication. And, and the truth is that most patients I've seen with COVID 
like the first thing they say to me is, I don't know why I did this. Like, I, I don't know why. Like, yes, there are the minority of people who are, like, like I said, staunchly anti-vaccination, but most are like, I don't know why I did this. And and people say to me, well, if I'm healthy. I don't know why I would take the gamble. And I'm like, yeah, but but healthy, like that is a that is a that is a like a, a stat. Like like it's very hard on the individual person level to say that you're healthy and that you're going to be free from uh, a problem when COVID strikes because it's it's a host response problem. It just doesn't, you know. Unfortunately, with COVID, as we've learned through each wave, is that is that is that being healthy is not is not necessarily protective, and that you may have an underlying condition or maybe not. Or frankly, I've seen lots of people who have no conditions and just have a really bad illness. And if they understood that that was the that that was part of the calculus in their risk benefit calculation, I think they would have, would have changed their minds initially. Dr. Buchanan, with your work as a flight physician and STARS, is this wave behaving differently in terms of where people are able or the number of people who are able to access high levels of care close to their homes than what we've seen in previous waves? Well, I mean, like like this, this wave is overwhelming. And, you know, what we've seen is surrounding Edmonton and Calgary, it's just, there's just not enough resources. And, you know, a lot of community hospitals do an excellent job providing care. But the trouble with COVID is it's like, you know, someone comes in with, with breathing issues, they get put on oxygen, then they get kind of get predictably worse and worse and worse. And eventually they have to be transferred because a lot of community hospitals don't provide don't provide ICU. And even if they provide ICU, they, they have a threshold at which they can't keep somebody for that long because that person may need higher levels of care. And so I, I think what, what I've seen is, you know, a lot of, frankly, just inundated hospitals around Alberta, which are struggling. And we also have issues on top of that with, with uh, ground transportation and access to, you know, EMS providers and practitioners. And I think this is, you know, as I mentioned, every time we've stressed the system. But I think now, like, we, we, have, a, we have a very geographically diverse population but also, you know, unfortunately with Delta, we know that because it's so infectious, it really has touched, you know, almost every town across Alberta in, in ways that are truly unfortunate. Before we wrap up today's conversation, which if you had one, a one or two sentence message that you could share with all of the Albertans watching at home. What what would it be, um, Ellie? Do you mind if we start with you? Yeah, no problem. One or two sentences. That's a tough one. You know, a big one is that we can't wait for the government to do something as individuals. You know, I'm a nurse in a community in a home. Um, People knock on my door every day. Um, we need to start taking responsibility ourselves and we're gonna have to bring that circle tight again because if the government is not putting restrictions in place, we need to be able to do that. I've got two kids at home um, that cannot get vaccinated and it's just time for Albertans to bring the responsibility back to themselves and use common sense and um, take the onus back on you to keep you and your family and your community safe, get your vaccination. Dr. Buchanan. 
Yeah, I would just say kind of avoid the noise. The truth is, like, we know that COVID is a deadly and disabling disease. And, you know, don't get vaccinated for me. Get, get vaccinated for your family, for your friends, for your loved ones. Just do it so you can, you can get, so we can all move past this. Dr. Schwartz. So I just want to express my gratitude to uh, the healthcare professionals that are working in ICUs, um, from the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the healthcare aides, the clerks, the cleaners, uh, the clergy, the social workers, um, the physiotherapists, the occupational therapists, the speech language pathologists, just everybody uh, is just doing such a phenomenal job under such um, immense duress. And, and so we really uh, appreciate you. Um, we also really appreciate all of the healthcare workers who are not, um, who, who are not from the ICU and who are filling in this, this desperate gap right now. And so thank you, thank you to um, both of you for coming onto the panel today to give people a glimpse. Uh, and and um, I hope that um, your colleagues can, um, can take comfort that, that Albertans really do appreciate what you're doing. One of our value-driven priorities at Protect Our Province Alberta is transparency. And we have had very high engagement today in the YouTube conversation around a question that I'm not sure anyone on this panel today can answer, but I would like to share it anyway. So feel free if you have some thoughts, folks are looking for advice. People genuinely want to know how they can convince the federal government to intervene if the government of Alberta won't. Ooh. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I think we, we need a collective voice. Like, I think, you know, having this, like, protect our province is, is an excellent way. But, you know, I think that, that obviously, like, as healthcare providers, like, we've tried to advocate because this has just been, it's been awful. Um, but I think, you know, having more and more citizens come together and, and demonstrate that, that this is what they want, that this is, like, what, we live in a democratic society. You know, if, if people want this because they want to be safe in their communities then then they have to first of all express their opinions and, and show their and show their support and also vote ellie would you like to add anything i don't know what else to say other than to just try and i mean write letters if you need to um yep. you know do these press conferences when with people that are asking um, just try and get the word out to let them know what dire straits that we're in. That's why we're here. We want people to know what is actually going on. Um, I have nothing to gain from being on here other than to try and let Albertans what, uh, know what's actually going on in our hospitals. Um, you know, I, I don't know how else to get a hold of the federal government. Write your MPs. Get a hold of them. Tell them to watch this and let them know what's going on in Alberta and that we need help. Dr. Schwartz? Yeah, I, I have no idea. Um, I mean, I think it's it's important that we do exercise our voice. Um, there's strength in numbers, so you know, if you can uh, corral your colleagues into into putting your voices together, maybe you can um, 
you know, add voices to, um, to, to colleagues from, from across the, the province, uh, similar to what we've done with the infectious disease physicians. Um, you know, otherwise start with your, your community and, and hopefully there's enough of a groundswell that, that um, people will listen to us. I, I guess I, I just want to add that I, I think it is like I, I will add that as an ICU physician, I think it uh, I think I'm very uh, I, I'm, I'm sad actually that, that we're here talking about this and asking how to petition the federal government, because this is not something that we should need to do. Like we need to have we need to have proper leaders that make hard decisions. And I don't think we need to shut down surgeries and, and cause problems for the for the global community just to have the leadership do their job. Like, I'm sorry, but this is not. You know, like uh, this is not a time for for you know asking for federal intervention. Like realistically, we need our leaders to stand up and do what's right. Thank you very much, Dr. Buchanan, um, and thank you, everyone who joined us today, from our panelists to the media and to the folks watching at home. Um, this was the first panel where I was genuinely teary-eyed and goosebump shivering throughout. I don't believe that I will ever lose the quiver in your voice, Ellie, when you were talking about the texts that say critical staffing shortage, critical staffing shortage. And thank you both just so much for what you are doing for our province and for the information that you have shared with us today. Um, today's been a lot. The news today across the country has been a lot. And today's episode has covered a lot of the challenges that are currently unfolding in Alberta's hospitals. Um, it's important, I think, to note that even as all of this is unfolding, as both Ellie and Dr. Buchanan have said today, Alberta's medical professionals will care for you if you need help. And so even though we're talking about capacities and crunch in the system, please continue to seek primary, urgent and emergent care when you need to. So many things are a lot right now, but you and your health folks at home really does matter and Please remember that these wonderful humans will be there if you need them. Um, I think it's important to say that in the deep, there is also little bits of joy, um, joy that is found in community and in connection. And if you are looking for some joy today, may I suggest that you take a look at Julie Rohr's Twitter feed, um, an Edmontonian that we talked about last week when Nurse Rayanne Booker was with us. Um, I promise you that you will see the joy that is coming out of the deep um, that I am mentioning right now if you take a moment to do that for yourself today. We will be returning on Wednesday with an update on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and a special focus on long COVID. Until next time, remember COVID is airborne, where the best available mask you have access to, and vaccinations really do save lives. Thank you and stay safe, everyone.